Silence. It's kind of an odd thing, isn't it? I'm aware that in, in the room, during that 30 seconds of silence, there was probably a vast array of emotions. Some of you heard me say 30 seconds, and you were like, what? To me, that felt like five or 10 minutes. That was so cringy and so awkward, and thank God that guy up there is speaking finally. But some of you, that could have been like the most calming 30 seconds of your life. That could have been the best 30 seconds of your day, and I would tell you, you are in the minority. The person up on stage was not comfortable to stand up here for 30 seconds and not say anything. And the reason I will say that you are in the minority if you liked that terrible experience we just went through is because as a culture, as a people, in our lives, we have lost a sense of silence. Think over your last 24 hours or maybe even from when you woke up to what got you here today. Did you wake up to the sound of an alarm? Did you reach over and turn off a noisemaker or a fan that ran all night? Did you go and eat breakfast and maybe eat with someone, a roommate or a family member? Or did you pull up an episode of, of whatever TV show? Or did you pull up a YouTube video? Or did you scroll through Instagram and watch video after video? And then you drove to church or whatever your first activity was, was of the day. And you listened to music as you got here. And maybe you were here in this building this morning and you came in and from the second you stepped into the doors until the second you left, there was probably not a single moment of silence. This is the culture. This is the time. These are the people we have become. Other than silence, there's another sense I think we have lost as a people. And that's the sense of boredom. And you'll be like, no, Brennan, I mean... If this dude could sit in my philosophy class and hear my professor lesser, he would never tell me I am not bored. If he had my job and he sat at my desk and did what I did, that dude would know real boredom. But that's what I want to talk about. Real boredom. I mean, pre-2007 boredom. 2007, the world changed. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the iPhone was invented and released in 2007. Twitter and Facebook became popular in 2007, changing the landscape with social media for the rest of who knows how long of history. Netflix had its biggest year yet and forever, and since then has continued to grow as a company. 2007 has been labeled the digital age. It's the birth of the digital age. And many of us in the room, including myself, remember very little before that. We maybe were kids, but we weren't even like fully experiencing life yet pre the digital age. I mean, like, do we really know boredom? Like I said, mo most of us, one old guy kind of knows boredom, but the rest of us, do we really know boredom? True, real boredom, where you would sit at a coffee table waiting for whoever's going to show up and not pull out your phone where you would go to class and when the lecture is boring, you would actually still have to listen. I'm talking boredom, where the only thing occupying your attention is the fact that nothing is occupying your attention. Like that kind of boredom. Like when you were a kid and you literally thought you would die of boredom, that boredom. We've lost it. Microsoft conducted a survey with young adults and they asked a couple of questions and one of them struck me. And it said that 77% which I think is lowballing it. 
77% of young adults, when nothing was occupying their attention, the first thing they did was reach for their phone. These are the people we've become. This is the culture we live in. We've lost a sense of silence and a sense of boredom, and our culture will tell you that's a successful thing. Because boredom and silence, those are wasteful, aren't they? Why would I not sit at the table eating my Reese's Puffs while watching Jim play another prank on Dwight? Why wouldn't I do that? That would be a waste of a time for me to not enjoy that moment. Why would I get in my car and drive wherever I'm going and not turn on the beebs? Like, this, is, this would be ludicrous. This is silly for us not to do these things. But what if the crazy claim is for me to stand up here tonight and tell you as a people, we need to regain our sense of silence and boredom. And I'll change my word for boredom a little bit and call that solitude. And as we regain and rediscover silence and solitude, it'll help us to rediscover our presence as a people. And what I mean by presence is it's kind of multifaceted here. Because as presence, we need to rediscover who we are as people. I mean, we live in a culture of hustle and hurry and noise and constant being around people or things, and we no longer have the time or even the capacity at sometimes to filter what's inside of us, the emotions or our days or our relationships. It's all just a mumble jumble jet mess inside of us. We're not rediscovering our own presence as people or a presence to others where we go and we get meals or we sit in living rooms or we hang out with friend, f- friends and family and we pull out our phones yet again or we turn on something on the TV or another movie or another activity and we've never had a real good conversation in groups of people. Or rediscovering our presence with God where every single time we're in a period of boredom or solitude, something is calling for our attention Some stimulus is asking for us to give it a piece of our time when God may be doing the very same thing, trying to reach you wherever you're at. So tonight, I just advocate and I will preach to you that we must be a people who are silent and bored again. And to do so, we're going to look at a man in the Bible by the name of Jesus. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Matthew 3. And we're going to read some of my very favorite verses, starting in verse 13. But I'm actually going to start reading in verse 16, so I'm going to paraphrase for you a second. Jesus has now pulled up to the Jordan River. And at the Jordan River, his cousin is hanging out there with all of his people. And his cousin's name is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is dunking people left and right in the Jordan River, having them repent and believe because the kingdom of God is here and he's preparing them and Jesus comes strolling up. And I, this is how it happens in my head. Like it's a, it's a semi-paraphrase. But Jesus pulls up and he's like, what up, cuz? I'm here. Like I'm gonna need you to, to baptize me. And John's like, nah, 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 bro, bro, bro. But you're the son of God. Like you are the Messiah. You baptize me. And Jesus is like, no, like I wish, but how it actually needs to go down is, is to fulfill righteousness. Uh, you're going to need to baptize me. Like I said, it's, it's like a, it's a mock paraphrase. And then you pick up in verse 16 and it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and the spirit of God descended like a dove alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son 
whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And these are my, some of my favorite verses in the entire text. Because if you were to just reorient your mind and think about what just happened, I think we read scripture in a, in a kind of glazed, numb way. Like, think about what just happened. Two people got in a river, one gets dunked under the water, and as he comes up, heaven splits open. The sky splits open, and the Spirit of God descends in a way you can physically see it, almost like a dove, and lines on Jesus, and a voice audibly heard by the crowd around can hear him say, this is my son, whom I love. Do we understand what's happening here? It's beautiful. God is pouring praise and admiration to his son who hasn't done anything yet. And then right after these beautiful verses in this story here in Matthew 3, we get Matthew 4. And this one kind of rubs me the wrong way. See if it rubs you the wrong way. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's like, Thank you, Bible, of course. The tempter came here and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you don't see who the tempter is, it's the devil. He comes and he appears to Jesus face to face, toe to toe. They square off in the wilderness. Jesus hasn't eaten anything for 40 days, a month and a half. He has been in this place where some will call it the desert, some will call it the wilderness. And he has gone around and now he's being tempted. And first he's offered bread, which is like, Give me the butter. I would have been in right away. But Jesus, better than me. And he passes. He resists. And he goes on and he's offered protection. And he passes. He resists the temptation. And finally, he's offered authority. And he passes and he resists. And he, st- and he says here in verse 10, Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is ri- written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And the reason these texts kind of rub me the wrong way. It's because I see a heavenly father who loves his son, opens up the heavens and pours his spirit out on him in in the form of a dove, dove who audibly speaks words over him so the people around would have affirmation of who he is. And that same God, by the power of his spirit, leads him by the hand into the wilderness. Nobody else confused by this? It doesn't make sense why that God would align the same with that God. Why would he take him to a place of isolation, a place of loneliness, to pray and fast, to be at his weakest, to come up against his his greatest adversary? It doesn't make any sense to me. But then as I studied and as I prayed, it clicked. Because I had always seen the wilderness as a place of weakness but God helped me see it as the wilderness is Jesus' greatest source of strength. Because in those moments, as he prayed and fasted, his body and his soul aligned with that of his father in direct communication so that when he stood toe-to-toe with Satan himself, he would be able to come out the other side unscathed, completely victorious, and erupting into what his ministry was going to be. And here's where I think scripture really opens up to us. Is that word wilderness there? If you're not familiar, the Bible wasn't written in English. This section was probably written in Greek. And when that word wilderness is examined in its original language, which would have been Greek, the word is eromos. 
And Eremos is this period, it's this place that is commonly translated wilderness or desert. But it also can be translated desolate place, solitary place, or my favorite, quiet place. And I saw it. For the first time I saw it, that God took Jesus, the son whom he loved, and he led him to a place of quiet, solitary presence with him. And in those moments of prayer and fasting, Jesus reached what may have been the epitome of his spiritual power. And in that, he found victory, and that victory led to repetition. So if you're with me still, turn to Mark 1. And Mark 1 is Jesus' first day on the job. He has come out of the wilderness. He has done the 40 days. He's gone toe-to-toe. He has come out victorious, and he is now ready to do the ministry that he has waited 30 years to do. And when he does that, he does not hold back at all. Jesus goes full bore doing everything that we thought he was going to do. He heals people. He casts out demons. He, he does miracles. He teaches. And he calls disciples all in this one day. And have you ever had a day where at the end of it, I don't know if it was physical work or mental work, but at the end you were so exhausted that you could just cash out wherever you ended up laying your head down. Like you prayed and maybe made it to your pillow, but realistically, like you turned on something on TV and you passed out on the couch. Like that kind of crazy tired day. That's what I imagine just happened to Jesus. He comes out of the wilderness and he invests, he pours out everything he has to the people there and he passes out. And in verse 35, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Now this, this is convicting to me because Jesus, by his example, shows us that maybe presence with God is more important than sleep. But I don't don't want to dive too far into that because I don't want anybody to get really convicted. But what I do want you to hear is that Jesus, after 40 days in the Eremos, in the wilderness, in the desert, in the quiet place, praying and fasting, spent 24 hours doing ministry before he instantly went back to the place of his power and his strength. That is incredible. And he doesn't stop there. Mark 6, if you're still sticking with me, he takes his 12 and he sends them out two by two. And he goes and he gives them authority and power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to teach in his name. And they come back and in verse 30, it says the apostles gather around Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Solitary place, quiet place. Anybody want to guess what word those are? Ramos. Again and again, not only is Jesus living it, but Jesus is now teaching it to the people who follow him. And finally, in Luke 5, Jesus has had a very similar day to that which I described in Mark 1, where he's casting out demons, calling disciples, uh, training up the church. He is rebuking anything that comes against him that's of evil, and he's just doing miracle after miracle. And it says in verse 15 and 16, yet as the news about him spread, so the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus... He often withdrew to lonely places 
to the Eremos and prayed. And this Eremos, this, this wilderness, the lonely place that Jesus found, it was a life practice to him. It was a pattern he developed that he would work and he would rest. He would go to these places and he'd get with his father. And you can see another pattern through the Gospel of Luke. If you were to flip through the chapters and read the story from cover to cover, I think you'd discover the pattern that is Jesus, as he grew in popularity and fame, as people followed him and came to know his name, the more that happened, the more he withdrew to lonely places to get with his father. But as a culture, I'll ask you this. Are we a people that even remotely model that? Are we? Seriously. Look at Elon Musk. This is a guy at literally the peak of pretty much all success. He has done everything, launched two major companies in SpaceX and Tesla. And he says, if you don't work 80 hours a week at least, then you don't want to make it. That is what our culture and our people have started to label success as. But Jesus, as he grew in success and fame and popularity, he just continued to step back and to be with his father and to connect in the way he needed to. And I recognize that this is where the excuses might start to flow. Because this is where they came for me. That I'm busy with school. I'm busy with work. When I get home after a long day, I am tired, Brennan. The excuses continue to come. They're not going to stop. They haven't stopped in my life. But Jesus needed the Eremos. So we need it too. And this Eremos, it's the silence and the solitude that I'm preaching on. And when we embrace silence and solitude as a people and as a church, it leads us to regain our presence. So I'm going to break them into two parts and I'm going to first do silence and then I'll get to solitude. So in silence, I mean, I have to say it and I'm sorry, mom, I know you're watching on the live stream and you taught me better, but y'all need to shut up. Mama, middle name is like the full name is right on our tongue. I know it. She taught me better, but I won't say it again. I promise. But it's, it's in the sermon series. Like what well, I had to say it. Silence is both internal and it's external. External is it's everything around you. I mean, it's the music you listen to, the shows you watch, the podcast, every single stream of content, YouTube, Twitch, video games. It's constant everywhere we go. It's people too. These are external noises that are always stimulating us, always coming in. You hardly can stop them in the world we live. And culture will tell you, why should you? Why should you stop the external silence? This is how we learn. This is how we grow. This is how we function as people. But even if you push aside all of the external silence, if you were to sit in a completely quiet room and do absolutely nothing, there's a healing, comforting, calming nature about it. Yesterday I came to the church, and over here we have a chapel out this back way, and I closed the doors of that chapel in the middle of the afternoon, and for 45 minutes I just sat there. No phone, no music, no Bible, no really even journal. I just sat there. And I don't, there's some times where like silence gets eerie quiet, where there's no fans running there's no appliances you can hear. There's no pipes you can hear. There's no wind against the building. And for 45 minutes, that was my experience. 
And when I leave that moment, there was a calm and a comfort, honestly a healing of my soul that I didn't have when I went in there. And I don't tell this to you to brag. We'll, we'll get to exactly how I'm not bragging later. But I do tell this to you to explain that I never want to stand up here, and I know this has been in Jaina's heart as well. We will never stand up here and tell you to do something we are not willing to practice ourselves. People call that hypocrisy, and it's one of the greatest insults Jesus uses in the entire Bible. So I am in the fight with you, and I am trying to quiet my own soul. St. Augustine, who is this incredible theologian, calls external silence entering into joy. But our culture will call it waste. So now you, you have a choice to pick. But before you do that, let me tell you about the harder one. Because it's easy to turn off the TV. We don't always do it, but it's easy. It's just one, one click of the button. But internal silence is everything inside you. And I have no idea how your, your brain ticks. But unfortunately, I do know how mine ticks. And every single moment of every single day, if my eyes are open, my brain is working, I will think about things you don't ever need to think about. I thought about today. I mean, what I was going to eat for supper, what I was going to eat for breakfast the next day, when I was going to get groceries, when I was going to do chores, what my week looked like, what my next year looked like, what my job looks like, what my friends look like, what my friends think of me, what you think of me, what God thinks of me. I thought about Jesus. I thought about the word. I thought about, it constantly goes on. I'm not saying you're like me, but my brain, it just never turns off. An internal silence means we have to quiet that. And when we get to those quiet places of internal silence, it actually gets kind of hard right away. I just want, I want to be honest and candid with you. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Because when we finally start to silence and quiet our own thoughts, in order to, to kind of let go of some of those, you need to process them. So the hurt you've been feeling, that that, that person or that thing happened to you, in silence, you slow down enough and you're quiet enough to actually feel what's going on inside of you. The disappointment you feel because that thing happened again where you didn't get that opportunity, it very well might come up the grief you've been avoiding because, and I know this isn't a great sales pitch but wouldn't you rather process that in the safety of God's presence than out in the world when it just erupts at any moment and here's where I think I constantly get stuck is I love to drown out the internal silence with external noise that instead of processing what I'm feeling or thinking over an in, 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 uh, interaction in a healthy way, I'd rather put on another song or watch another episode. I'll use this example for you. Maybe you're a person who works out and you run or you go to the gym. I don't know about all of you. I, I'm preaching to myself here, but I will not. I, I won't do it. I will not work out without headphones. Like, it is like a cardinal sin for me. I'm not doing it. I have gone to the gym, realized I don't have my headphones, turned around and gone home, and it's like, it's not God's will today. Like, I, I, I'm not working out. I actually have a backup pair of headphones I now keep in the glove box of my car because that's how serious I am about this. Because when I'm working out, I like kind of like it, 
but I also don't at all want to think about how my body feels. <laughs> like, like if you're running, I want to turn on any kind of TV show, put any noise in my mind so that I have no idea how bad my lungs hurt. And this is what we do as a culture. We're hurt people existing in a broken world, but we're drowning it out with any kind of stimulus we can so that we don't have to actually experience or think about those pains we're going through. And to get silence, we need to embrace both internal and external. And when we do that, we can move on to solitude. And solitude is defined by John Mark Comer as being alone with God and your own soul. Where you step away from all that life has and all that life has going on, and it's just you and God. That's solitude. It's simple. But I think we also get it confused with a couple other things. We get solitude commonly confused with isolation and loneliness. So why would I go to a place of isolation and loneliness? Why would I put myself there? Because in those places, it's just going to hurt. Hey, yeah, I told you there's going to be some, some growing pains in silence. But si- solitude is not about escape or danger. It's about engaging in life and safety. Because isolation says, I'm not dealing with that. I'm going to leave that there and I'm running away from it. A lot of times not bringing God. But solitude takes that baggage, that hurt and that pain, even the joys, and it carries it into a moment where you sit in God's presence and you engage deeply in all that life has to offer, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And from there, we can start to experience what Richard Foster calls inner fulfillment. It's when we can feel connected to God. I've lived this Christian life for, oh gosh, six, seven years now. That's how long I'd claim to be like a a follower of Jesus. And I cannot tell you how many times over six and seven years I've heard people come to me and say that they're not feeling God or not feeling Christianity. And in that, I think there's a, a ton of reasons we could say that. But even tonight, Maybe you sat in these chairs and you saw me down here. I'm like, I'm getting it hands up or you walk around and people are eyes closed, whatever, whatever. You don't have to do it, but I'm into it. So, and you see that and he's like, oh man, he's engaged. Like he's feeling something. And you're just disappointed because whenever you open your Bible or whenever you pray, you don't feel it. Or maybe you do sit in these chairs and you get into the worship and you maybe glean something from my, my preaching or, and then you go and, and Monday through Saturday, you don't feel God. You feel lost, you feel dry. It's it's really, really hard for you to exist out there. And in those moments, you come back to Sunday night in order to get your hit, to go back and to try and drag that out through another six days. But what if we keep misdiagnosing the problem and we say, I'm here, I'm sitting in these chairs, but God, he's absence. He's not present. But too often, I think the problem is our distraction, not his disconnection where God is trying, he's desperately longing to get to you, to grab your attention, to grab your heart. But the thing in your pocket, the screen in front of you continues to drag you away. That's why I'm preaching boredom and solitude tonight. Because God desires to speak to his people. He wants you to experience him, not just know him. He doesn't, he wants you to know him, but he wants you to experience him. But we have to get to a place where we can be in his presence. 
And that is why across history, some of the most incredible and amazing theologians have called silence and solitude one of the most important spiritual disciplines. Henry Nouwen actually has this quote, and he says, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set some time aside to be with God and listen to him. That's pretty straight shooting. He's not beating around the bush here. If I could paraphrase and give it to you another way, Henry Nouwen would say, relationship with Jesus is what makes you a Christian. And a relationship takes time. And if you're not willing to invest time in the relationship you have with God, then you're not a Christian. You're not a Jesus follower. And I know it's harsh. I, I get it. I, I, see, I hear it's harsh. But don't you see the reality of it? Think about any other relationship you have in your life. Friends, family, significant other. If you didn't spend time with them, if you never just listened to them, that relationship would significantly suffer if maybe even cease to exist. So why do we think our absence from God, our lack of drawing near to him and being in his presence and sitting in silence is any different? And that's why I leave you with these two choices. I think you can believe me, believe the pastors and theologians that come before me and preach this word. You can believe the life and teaching of Jesus. And in all of that, if you believe us, you can practice it engaging in silence and solitude in a regular pattern. Or you can take the road commonly traveled by our culture, and sadly, probably most of us even when we leave tonight. And we'll take the easy road, the normal road, the life that we just continue living. But before you make that choice, let me at least warn you of the consequences. If we're not willing to engage in silence and solitude as followers of Jesus, I can promise you that you'll begin to feel distant from God. That when he tries to speak to you, you're not willing to listen. And when he wants you to experience his presence, you're not going to be able to feel it. And you may become distant from yourself because everything that happens in life is inside of you, but you're not processing it. You're not taking your thoughts and feeding them through the word or through God's presence in prayer. And you're not evaluating what you're doing and what you're feeling. And you start to lose distance from even who you are. And you're going to start to lose distance from others. Because you'll step into rooms. And you'll be distracted by phones or music or alcohol or whatever it is. And you'll start to realize you don't have any close friends. You don't have any people who know you who actually care about the level of your soul and how you're functioning as a person. It's because you're not asking those questions to yourself. So you're probably not asking it to them. So why are they asking it to you? After that, there's an undercurrent of anxiety that starts to breed in our people. And it's because, again, we're not feeling connected to God, the source of peace, and we're not dealing with our own baggage. So, of course, there's a sense of anxiety, and that leads us to exhaustion. We're retired and worn out and burnt out as people. And exhaustion leads us to escapism, where we're back in the cycle, pulling out our phones, turning on our TVs, plugging in the earbuds, and we're not feeling life. We're not doing it the way God has designed it. And we become easy prey for the enemy. And unhealth sets in. And this isn't just spiritual unhealth. It's holistic unhealth. Where you and I physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, 
We're not well if we don't engage in silence and solitude with God. I mean, even our culture starts to get this. If you looked on like the app store or you Googled some of the most trending apps, some of the most trending and popular apps on the up and coming list right now are mindfulness and meditation apps. Maybe you even have some on your phone tonight. And what our culture has done is they've recognized this undercurrent, this exhaustion, this escapism. They've seen the problems and they've taken Jesus out of the solution and offered you another app. And they say, if you just listen to this person speak or this sound for 10, 15 minutes, your problems will be solved. But Jesus, 2,000 years ago, did it himself. And for thousands of years since then, the church has taught a practice of silence and solitude that offers you a key to fix the problems that we're dealing with. And if you're willing to do the hard work and invest in here, here's some of the positives I feel like you can find. You can find a quiet place where it's just you and God. And in those moments, you can hear from him. I mean, I'm not like, this isn't just like some hear from, like, I'm talking like you can hear from God in a supernatural, incredible, crazy way where you sit in his presence asking for his spirit to, see, to speak to you. And most of the time, I've never experienced it audibly, but you leave with a clarity knowing that you just encountered the presence of God. Or we just take our time again. The positive of silence and solitude is we slow down. We feel again. And we face life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the safety of God's arms. So if you're willing to do some of that hard work and invest in silence and solitude, I want you to do it with some practicality. Because like I said, this isn't something you're just going to stumble into. We're not trained. For our entire lives, we've never been trained to practice this. So right now, you're going to have to work at it to engage this, and I want to equip you in that in some way. So my application is this. For silence, set a modest goal. Maybe you heard me say the 45 minutes or so. That, that was long for me. Like I, I'm a pastor in training, and I, I, don't, I don't do 45 minutes every day. Like you're, you're crazy if you think I'm that spiritual. <laughs> I, five to ten minutes where you just sit three to five times a week. Just sit in God's presence. And in those moments, you maybe would practice breathing or listening prayer. Breathing prayer where you would just root yourself in a chair, feet flat on the ground, hands flat on your lap, and just focus on your own breathing. And in those moments, as you feel your mind start to quiet, you can engage in listening prayer where you ask God as you are emptying your mind, would he fill it with truths from his word or from identity or from purpose or whatever he needs to speak to you in those moments. And then in solitude, just get away from it all. Leave your phone and your laptop. Leave the people, but take God and find your place. Where is it? I found the chapel. Not all of you have access to that. But maybe it's a dorm, or a dorm room. Maybe it's your own apartment room. Maybe it's a closet in your apartment. Maybe it's your car with the radio off. Maybe it's a corn. I don't know what it is for you. 
but find your place where it's just you and God. After I finish here in like 30 seconds, I'm actually going to give us two minutes of silence. And I know some of you are dying at the thought. But in these two minutes of silence, my prayer is that we would just practice the thing I'm, I'm preaching on. Where you would just sit and, and absorb just the moment in a way. Where there's two minutes, 120 seconds of no noise, no keys, no speaking, no praying. You're just here, engaged in a moment. And if you need to, you can focus on your breathing or you can ask God to speak. I don't, do whatever you'd like. But for two minutes, that's what I'm going to ask of you. Because we need to rediscover our presence as people. We need to rediscover our presence to ourselves. It's not fair for you personally to not be able to process what's inside of you. To live this life exhausted, exhausted and weary and burdened. That's not at all what God desires for you. To rediscover our presence to people. To love those around us. And as we recognize them, we can serve them and be like Jesus was to to those people. And finally, we need to recognize our presence to God. Letting him speak and step into moments where he desires just to show us the same way he showed Jesus. This is my son. This is my daughter. I love them and I am pleased with who they are. As we practice silence and solitude, as we jump into the Eremos, the wilderness, the place of power for Jesus, I think we're going to find it. So pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning, or for this, for this night, and the willingness of each and every person to come and invest this time. It doesn't go unnoticed by you, and it doesn't go unnoticed by us. So we pray in their investment, God, you just come and you'd meet them where they're at. That whether it's through this word, through this moment of silence, or through this last couple of songs, that you would come and your spirit would speak, or he would just provide a peace and a calm that they maybe haven't felt in a really, really long time. So God, we offer this moment up to you, just willing and open for whatever you have for it. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.